Hello, and welcome to To Think Minimum, the podcast of the Technology Policy Institute. Today is Monday, October 10th. I'm Scott Walston, president of the Technology Policy Institute. I'm here with my co-host, DPI Senior Fellow and President Emeritus, Tom Leonard. And today we're speaking with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Dr. Bhattacharya is a professor of health policy at Stanford University and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He directs Stanford's Center for Demography and Economics of Health and Aging. His research focuses on the health and well-being of vulnerable populations, with a particular emphasis on the role of government programs, biomedical innovation, and economics, including the epidemiology of COVID-19 and evaluating policy responses to the epidemic. His broader research interests encompass the implications of population aging for future population health and medical spending, the measurement of physical performance, uh, sorry, the measurement of physician performance tied to physician payment by insurers, and the role played by biomedical innovation on health. He's published 135 articles in top peer-reviewed scientific journals in medicine, economics, health policy, epidemiology, statistics, law, and public health, among other fields. He holds an MD and PhD in economics, both from Stanford University. We spoke with Jay back in 2020, and we're delighted to speak with him again today. Jay, thanks so much for joining us again. Thank you, Scott. Great to be here. Thank you, Tom. Um, so let's um, start off with what you know. I, I know you're probably tired of talking about by now, um, but COVID. Um, and in the early days of the pandemic, you co-authored the Great Barrington Declaration, which, um, to put it mildly, I guess, was um, wild, widely criticized. Uh, and, and as I read it, it had sort of three main components, and correct me if I'm sort of reading it wrong, but the first was you know, the assertion that lockdowns were, would be, were extremely costly in terms of lost education, people who couldn't get standard medical care, even if it was urgent, financial costs, and, and so on. And then based on that, we should focus on targeting the vulnerable, at least until there was a vaccine, which meant letting the least vulnerable go about their lives, and work towards, the third being work towards herd immunity, um, which did include using vaccinations. Um, by now, of course, we know the first point is true. We know that the costs of the lockdowns and school closings were enormous. You can talk to any parent. They know that just intuitively by seeing their kids and little kids' lack of progress. But studies have shown that we know 3 million kids disappear from schools and the poorest suffered the most. Um, lockdowns might have done more to worsen inequality than any other single event in, in recent history. Um, now, it, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to argue with that, that first point, but how do you feel about the other um, recommendations? What, what do you feel you got right? What did you get wrong? And what would you have said differently if you knew then what we know now? So uh, that's a great question, Scott. And I, I do agree with you about the harms of the lockdowns. Um, they're devastating and we still haven't paid them all. Um, you know, pe pe especially for the poor, poorest countries in the world, we're going to continue to pay them for a very long time. Um, the, the, uh, the, 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 the schooling loss in the U.S. was bad, but if you should, you should look what happened in Ghana, where four and a half million kids never came back to school after two years out. Hmm. Um, the generational inequality we've developed, uh, we've sort of pushed through the, with the lockdowns is almost unimaginable. Um, but uh, so let's, let's leave that aside. I think we, have, we, have, we agree on that. Uh, there's two other points uh, that, that we talked about in the Great Barrington Declaration. One was that that uh, we could do focus protection for older populations, uh, that we could shield them with policy potentially uh, to protect them from COVID-19 because there's this thousand fold difference in the, 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 the risk of dying from COVID if, if you get COVID for older, older people much more than younger people. Um, that, that point I think has been, um, is, has, has been validated. And, and it, now you have to say, like bring you back to October, 2020, we wrote it. The vaccines were still not there. Right. I think that was probably the most legitimate criticism of the of the Great Barrington Declaration is how do you do focus protection? 
Now, the, the, uh, the Greg Barrington Declaration was a one-page document. It wasn't aimed at pr producing a comprehensive strategy for a detailed tactical strategy for how to do focus protection in every single setting. Uh, what it was, was it was a change in principles how we we're managing the pandemic and an invitation to discussion uh, and thinking and creative thinking by local public health. Right, so, so we gave some suggestions for how that this might be accomplished in some settings, right? So for instance, in uh, dense urban settings with lots of multi-generational homes, that might, it might've involved, uh, you know, uh, making, uh, make, making hotel rooms available uh, for older people who live in multi-generational homes. So if someone is exposed in the house, they can call local public health, local public health then offers them a hotel room for a few days until they get cleared uh, or uh, organizing home deliveries. Uh, it would have been difficult no matter what, especially in very, very crowded places, uh, very, very poor places um, without the vaccine. Uh, but it would, I think it would have been possible. Was, certainly if we'd had that as a, uh, a part of, as the main part of our strategy, we would never have sent COVID infected patients back to nursing homes, right? That came about because we did, we were thinking about protection of hospital systems rather than protection of people. Um, so, I th I th but, but I, I, I made a claim that I think it's been validated. I think the, the validation comes in countries that followed a focused vaccination strategy for, for older people, right? So I'll just give the example of Sweden, uh, but you could also point to the UK. Uh, uh, and, and other places, in, in, but Sweden's clean. Um, in March of, uh, between November and March of, uh, of, and February of 2020, uh, 2020 and 2021, um, there was a massive wave of cases in Sweden. Um, and, you know, it's cases everywhere around the world in the Northern Hemisphere in winter, so that, that's not surprising, but, the, but a lot of deaths came with that, COVID-19 deaths came with that, that wave. Uh, that, but then there was a second spring wave in, in Sweden, a very large number of cases that came happened in spring of 2021. In the interim, Sweden had vaccinated maybe 10, 15% of its population, but they were very systematic. They, uh, they, they went from the oldest on down and they were very, very strict. So like there was a, there was a guy that was in local in public health in Sweden, it's like 40 years old, jumped the queue, got the vaccine and they fired him because he jumped the queue. Um, what you saw in Sweden in that spring wave was absolutely remarkable. You had a very large number of cases, but very few deaths per case. You see this decoupling just by vaccinating the old, they had decoupled cases from deaths. That's what herd immunity looks like. So both focus protection and herd immunity point comes, comes back to that, that uh, what, what it ought to, ought to look like. So herd immunity looks like a decoupling of cases from deaths. But um, it also, you know, it's, I mean, Sweden is 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 the example of of that. But you know, there are other countries that had fewer deaths. Um, I mean, Germany ended up having fewer cumulative deaths per capita than Sweden did, um, and I don't think they took that true. approach. It's not, it's not true anymore. Um, in, in a cumulative sense, I mean, it's yeah, true according to uh, the, it's, um, it's shocking. But actually, I think uh, per like as far as like uh, overall excess deaths per. Per per per, uh, per person, it's actually lower in Sweden through the whole pandemic cumulatively than Germany. Okay, so that's a good point. So you're talking about it's excess mortality, not just COVID deaths. Yeah, which which probably should be the right measure, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. I mean, I think Sweden is other than I think Norway, maybe Denmark, um, but I think uh, but it's, it's better than than Finland. It's it's the best in Europe, and it's. Norway and Sweden, Norway, Finland, all four of the Scandinavian countries did really quite well 
and they had a much lighter touch than you know much of the rest of Europe and certainly much of the much of the United States uh, in terms of again in terms of overall excess deaths per capita. Right. I'm, I'm oh. looking through the data here, and that, that's right. Um, in terms of just COVID deaths, Germany had fewer per capita than Sweden, but in terms of excess mortality, Sweden did have fewer than Germany or just about anybody else. Yeah. yeah. So um, let's talk about the, the, how the various professions behaved uh, during this. I mean, you've been uh, very critical. Uh, about both the public health uh, professions and the economics professions, um, both of your hats, I guess. Um, and uh, you know, I find it actually pretty persuasive. But if you could just talk about talk about how the how the public health community reacted, how the economics uh, community reacted, and um, what lessons are there to be learned from that. Well, if I have to grade the failure, I, I'd say the public health community did worse. Um, the, the public health community, uh, I mean, I, like public health is a funny thing, right? So it's it's not exactly science. It, it's related to science, but not exactly science. But the norms of science, which are involved free exchange of ideas, lots and lots of people like you know, yelling at each other about being wrong and then showing data, correcting each other and learning from each other. That's, that's the norm in science. And public health, that is actually seen as not not the right thing because it the idea is it'll confuse the public if you allow that um public health has this norm of unanimity of messaging the problem was that if you if you, in order to have that unity message to have a moral basis for it you have to have, actually have settled science and there just wasn't like the, the fact that the great Barrington declaration drew so many signatories um it's it's evidence that that uh, that that the science wasn't settled from you know prominent scientists, Nobel Prize winners signed it, uh, and yet public health put out this unified messaging, and and used its power to demolish the reputations of people who, who signed it. Uh, you saw four days after I wrote the Great Barrington Declaration with with Sunetra Gupta and Martin Kulder, tens of thousands of people had si signed it already. Uh, uh, the uh, the head of the National Institute of Health, Francis Collins, wrote an email to Tony Fauci, uh, calling ca calling the three of us fringe epidemiologists. Um, I mean, I actually I gotta, I gotta show you a card. A friend of mine sent me a card. I made a card that says fringe epidemiologist. I don't know if I <laughs> it backwards. Um, <laughs> well, I, I read about that at the time right, when it was first publicized. And I, I was kind of shocked, but anyway, go on. Yeah, I'm sorry, I left that out of your bio. <laughs> <laughs> That might be the thing though, my epitaph when I die, Scott, <laughs> epidemiologist. Um, so, I, uh, but you know, it's, it's kind of an extraordinary thing. He basically, what they wanted to do was they wanted to create this illusion of consensus that didn't actually exist. It was deeply unethical. Instead of seeking to uh, a conversation to say, okay, well, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, there's, there's legitimate, as we, we've had in this podcast and, and afterwards, we've had legitimate conversations of the parts where I'm wrong, parts where I'm right. That's how science works, right? No, there's no, we're not God. Nobody's right all the time about literally everything. Um, so we, we correct each other. Instead, uh, they, they, they organized, public health organized propaganda campaign to destroy this conversation. I started getting calls from reporters asking me why I want to let the virus rip. When what I was calling for was focused protection of vulnerable people. Um, did not want to let the virus rip. Uh, the, the, the essentially, it's like they wanted to uh, create this like idea that it was morally wrong to question public health. 
and that but i say that itself was wrong and that was a i think a violation of the of the obligations that public health has to the public uh, so i think my criticism of public health is worse than economics economists i think my main criticism of economists is we were cowards uh and it was partly public health that did this right so public health made it so that if you brought up costs at all then there was something wrong with you you didn't like lives you, you valued money over lives and i think that silenced many economists uh, now there was some intellectual argument that economists made in the early days of the pandemic to try to justify this they would say things like well people voluntarily shut down locked down kept themselves away therefore the the formal imposition of lockdown had no marginal harm I'm frankly, I'm unpersuaded by this, mainly because if you look at the mobility data, it's only a, a, a certain smallish fraction of the population that actually reduced their mobility for extended periods of time. Essentially, relatively well-off people who could afford to work from home with no harm to their, their livelihood, they're the ones who reduce their mobility, reduce the amount of exposure. Other people serve them, um, and those people that serve them didn't, you know, people delivering food to their door and so on. Uh, if you look at there's a NBR paper uh, uh, that estimated that something like 20% of jobs in the US were replaceable with work from home. I think that group, it's the economist's argument that people voluntarily locked down is true for that group, but not for the other 80%. Um, and so I think uh, it was it was partly because of sort of I think bad economic arguments like that, and partly because of essentially being fear of being called a, a you know a grandma killer, economists stayed silent as things that were obviously going to cause tremendous economic harm and health harms happened. We have, I think, I mean, I, I like, I, okay, I, I get, I, I'm, a, I'm an economist, right? And I'm a health economist, right? So like one of the things that I do in my job is to like point out costs, even when it's not popular to do so. That's, that's our, isn't that like our first item in our job description, you guys? Um, but economists just failed at that during the pandemic. And uh, I think we need to have a conversation uh, as economists about why that is and then figure out ways so that we don't fail at that next time. So economists failed um, to discuss costs in a meaningful way. And I totally get what you're saying and also the what, how people reacted to it. Bob Hahn and I, a long, long time ago, had an article, an op-ed in the, in the Washington Post called How Much Is Granny Worth? Um, just you know about the value of statistical lives. Um, and of course, People hated it, um, which was great, and I love it. I, I mean, it was great, but it's, it was kind of the same sort of thing, except then it was abstract, and so it didn't, you know, mm -hmm. didn't matter. But but the other the other is um, sort of a, a, a refusal to acknowledge uncertainties, I guess, um, and that's not the way science is supposed to be. I mean, everything is there's there's uncertainties involved in everything. Um, well, I mean, do you, I mean, do you think this is more? I mean, it's, it seems more apparent now, but in, in this area and, and in some other areas, that there's this um, kind of groupthink, and it's and and anybody who dissents is <laughs> kind of cast cast out. <laughs> Under the um, and obviously, you've experienced some of that personally. Um, I mean, do you think that's? I mean. It's just as an observation, gotten got, gotten worse recently than it used to be. I mean, it seems to me there used to be much more discussion of controversial issues than there is now. It really has. I mean, economists generally, I, I had always thought were were uh, immune to that. Like we are a contentious bunch. 
some of my very favorite memories involve like fights in seminar rooms with other people who then we go out and like just enjoy enjoy each other's company afterwards right. i mean it's just that's just normal it, uh, but economists i think during the pandemic really did censor themselves uh again out of fear of of uh of being accused of being grandma killers or, or whatnot i'm not sure exactly but a, a lot of the the sort of contentiousness the economists would have with uh, absolutely extraordinary economic policy that cr created inequality and poverty at, on a grand scale. We stayed silent around. Um, we should have been the we should have been been pushing back. Uh, and and uh, Scott, I completely agree with you about the uncertainties. It was it was actually it's not just uncertainty. It's that it's the asymmetrical way that economists deal with the dealt with the uncertainty, right? So like the like take the, the idea of the precautionary principle. What does that mean? You have deep scientific uncertainty about how damaging this virus is. Um, well, in the precautionary principle, the idea would be, I'm allowed to say, assume the worst consistent with the evidence uh, about how bad the virus is. But what I'm not allowed to do is assume the best about the interventions I do undertake to manage the virus, mm -hmm. right? I have to still honestly consider the costs of them. I have to honestly consider the, the, the likelihood that the, these interventions will actually succeed in, in managing the virus. All of that, is you don't get to you don't get to assume that away just by saying precautionary principle, and economists who normally would push back very hard against the sort of woolly thinking didn't didn't do so when it came to thinking about uncertainties. Um, I mean that's that's another thing we've I I thought we were really good at is 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 thinking systematically and rigorously about uncertainties, Scott. But we didn't we didn't really do that very well. Do you think there's a case to be made that um, that economists that's, that's some of the, some not not the not the way people reacted to the Great Barrington Declaration and you because that seems really over the top. But that um, it it wasn't just cowardice uh, or not taking not thinking about it the way they used to. But that there you know, there there were these models predicting um, you know millions and millions of of deaths. I mean, we have seen over a million deaths in the in the U.S. Um, and so that there was. Uh, Maybe a rational reason for them to think that the 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 um, the costs of COVID itself would be much much higher than it turned out to be. I mean, I think uh, uh, for, first those models were. I mean, they were they were a thin read, Scott. I mean, like right. You, uh, no, and they were wrong. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, like they they predicted the millions of deaths within a couple of months of the the right. virus starting to come out, and which you know. But just, they also only focused on one thing, COVID. Yeah, done. that's right. No, right. Yeah. they were never a net. Right, anything. exactly. So they, they they were like they were narrowly focused, proven incorrect with in real time, and and then um and, and then the other thing is what's the marginal benefit of intervention? Right. The models vastly overstated the marginal benefit of lockdown. Just by the design, by assumption, they have they they have as the central animating idea that disease spreads when people are physically close to each other. Well, okay, that's that's I guess that's true. But then in the model, you just the counterfactual is you physically keep people apart from each other, and oh my gosh, the disease doesn't spread. We have solved everything. The lockdowns in real world don't act like that, right? Newborns and moms can't be separated. Parents and kids can't be separated. Uh, we need interaction with each other, and we're going to seek it out, no matter what a model says in, in a counterfactual. Um, so I, I, th I think um, the models were uh, were. I mean, as a, as a whole, you're absolutely right. I agree, Tom, that that they were like like economists were romanced by them to some extent. Um, but it was it was a it was a bad bad romance. If if you uh, if I can quote the great Lady Gaga song, I, I just it was it because it really just it, it ended up making us. Um, 
overly credulous about lockdowns uh, and their efficacy and ignoring their and we ignored their harms. So on on, on kind of a, a related point, I mean we're a we're a tech think tank, and one of the things we uh, we focus on or discuss is uh, is content moderation on the uh, on the internet and social media. Now. I know that that the that the that the social media companies uh, I don't know what censored or you know or uh, the anti-vaxxers and I don't put you in the camp with the anti-vaxxers so that's not but did they also censor uh, people who were talking who were raising questions about the efficacy of lockdowns? They did. So when we wrote the Great Brandon Declaration, um, Spiked Online wrote this article. Uh, basically, Google suppressed it. So if you did search in almost most countries, the Great Brainton Declaration, uh, what you would see was the propaganda campaign uh, against us. And on page three, you might see the, the, the document itself. Um, that lasted for a few weeks, I think. Um, Facebook pulled down the page for a week for no good reason. Um, it, it, Twitter kicked Martin Kulldorff off for, for a month. Well, he, I mean, they, 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 they suspended him for a month. And he could, I mean, it was, the, the, uh, although that was for a, a tweet where he said that uh, it, it makes no sense. It doesn't make sense to treat every single person of the same age with uh, of, of all ages with, uh, with with the same vaccine policy. Um, it made it, uh, it they, they really put their their thumb on the scale. So I'm, I'm involved in a lawsuit that the Missouri and Louisiana Attorney General's offices have brought against uh, the Biden administration. And uh, discovery from the lawsuit has showed that that there was a basically across the federal government, a dozen or more federal agencies worked to tell social media what and what what could and what could not be said. Uh, I think that's incredibly dangerous for democracy. Uh, I think that uh, it's, you know, of course, it's social media shouldn't permit violent threats against sing, single individuals or that, I mean, those kinds of things I, I completely don't make any sense to, to allow. Um, but, to but, but wait, to be clear, though, the lawsuit is not against the social media companies for Maybe uh, for their, you know, for their decisions on what's allowed to go up, it's was for the federal government, for the government to be telling the um, social media companies what they can do, right? Because that's exactly. a very big difference. Yeah. It's it is, it is a, a First Amendment lawsuit. That's the First Amendment lawsuit. Is that yeah. correct? Yes, it's the first. I think it's the biggest first. I mean, I, I, I'm biased, <laughs> admittedly, but um, <laughs> uh, but I, I think it's the most important First Amendment lawsuit since New York New, uh, New York Times versus Sullivan. Like it, it is because um, it's 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 some ways analogous. Is you have the government telling the social media companies, here's what can and can't be said on your on uh, in in polite company, and then the social media companies. Now I have to say, the social media companies, many of them just follow along in some cases happily. Um, uh, but it's unclear how happily, right? So when the government says you you should be censoring this, it's very difficult for social media company to say no, right? I, I, we're not going to do that because there's always an implicit threat of some sort of punishment. And uh, so yeah, we're not going after social media companies. We're going after the government for doing this 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 campaign. Um, in, in principle, I think the the government should never be do, uh, putting its thumb on the scale on this in this in this way in terms of the scientific debate. And that's exactly what it did. Even even aside from First Amendment issues, what uh, what are your observations about this? Uh, observations about this, you know, there's this, this uh, there's a lot of discussion about quote fact checking and fake news and and really as if it's always obvious what the correct facts are <laughs> and, what, and what's fake news and what's not. And this seems to be kind of a prime example of how 
you can go wrong with it. You know, that, that's a very risky enterprise. I mean, Tom, what I've noticed, what I noticed during pandemic was that basically those fact checkers got nearly everything wrong, nearly everything wrong, right? That I like, I like I, one of my um, earliest interactions with them was this this uh, uh, I, I was I did this like estimate of the of the of the infection fatality rate um, using this study that I ran early in the pandemic, a couple of studies I ran early in the pandemic, um, and there were fact checkers that were going after. Uh, saying saying things like basically they confuse the the case fatality rate, which is the 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 fatality rate among people who are who are like showed up and tested positive for COVID versus the infection fatality rate, which is an estimate of in the population at large, even people who didn't show up and have COVID but have antibodies, for instance, uh, have evidence of having a COVID. Um, they, they, I mean, they they confuse that. Then they confused questions about whether COVID, after you recover from COVID, whether you whether you either actually get COVID, uh, whether you get some sort of immunity against COVID. Absolutely, you do. There's strong evidence of that even early in the pandemic, and yet fact checkers squash that. Um, uh, the, the 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 over and over and over again, I've seen fact checkers get facts wrong, uh, and suppress legitimate thinking. Um, and Tom, you're right. I might be right wrong also. How do you know? Like, why is it some 24 year old intern at YouTube? Has a better way to tell whether I'm right or wrong than than uh, than 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 you know the the, the than just letting the debate happen. Um, I think there's some, you know, there's some ba basic things which are you know if, if someone says the Earth is flat, they got it wrong. But that really is not all that consequential a problem. If someone how, says, you know, how how do you deal with the issue of misinformation? I mean, some things you can just let let people say whatever they want. It doesn't matter. You know, flat Earthers can. Do whatever nonsense they want it they want to do and nobody cares um but you know sometimes misinformation is real and can cause harms and you know we know that russia sets up bot farms to uh, make certain kinds of misinformation spread more quickly but then like you say who decides what is misinformation i mean it, it seems like it's just an impossible problem we know there are real harms but who gets to decide what's real and what's not i i don't know what one does um, because yeah, not doing anything seems awful and doing something seems awful. Yeah, I, th I think the key thing is to me is trust, right? So like, let's leave aside like foreign policy, which I have literally no expertise in and, and like that, that, that kind of propagandist misinformation. Let's just stay on public health. Mm -hmm. In public health, the key is trust, right? So you have somebody that goes and says, vaccines cause you to be magnetic. COVID vaccines cause you to be magnetic. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? It doesn't cause you to be magnetic. It's it's just it's just a nonsense thing. Um, if you have a uh, public health that's trustworthy, then you can legitimately say no, it doesn't cause you magnetic. In fact, you could just do a little experiment. Someone that was just <laughs> injected, put a magnet on, magnet drops. You're like, okay, and that's it. That's a very very effective counter. If you if it's put out by somebody who's trustworthy, the fundamental problem here is that public health squandered the trust of the public. And so it had no capacity to counter even the most nonsense things. Um, if, if it had that, then the right answer isn't censorship. The right answer is just speech by trustworthy people. So the, the problem wasn't the fact checkers then. I mean, they were going with the who they thought were the trustworthy experts who turned out not wrong. to be so much. Well, I mean, the, the problem, like the, the, the fact checking enterprise in this case essentially picked winners and losers before, before the fact actually turned out was was, was resolved mm. and so like it, it put this like pall of oh my gosh i someone just did a fact check of me I'm, I'm 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 telling falsehoods or something pants on fire or whatever um well that that diminishes 
you know, the person who has that put against them, it, their credibility. Uh, and if it does it unfairly, when in fact they were right, they just, the, 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 the science was still being resolved, essentially what you've done is you've created an a, in incentive to not speak up when the, the facts as you're seeing them in your in the scientific evidence you're seeing, which hasn't yet become widely known, um, you're going to stay silent about those because you don't want to be labeled as un incredible or incredible or what's the right, I don't well, even know what the right word is. <laughs> to, to, be, to be more sympathetic, let's say, towards the, the public health community, wasn't the, I mean, especially the government officials, um, do you think they were just in the position early on, at least, of, of, of saying, well, we, we really don't know a lot of stuff, but we can't say that because that's going to diminish confidence in us even more. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the irony, I think, Tom. I think if they had said that. I, I don't think it worked out that to their yeah, I, th I think if they just said, we don't know. We, we, like, so like, just take immunity after COVID recovery, right? So uh, this new disease arrives. It's a coronavirus. Other coronaviruses produce some degree of immunity after after you've had them, um, not forever. Uh, you can get COVID, you can get coronaviruses a second, third, or fourth time. That's 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 normal, um, but we don't know with this disease. Uh, so uh, in it's like March of 2020, right? So if I were uh, the head of the CDC, then I would have said to the public, "Look, uh, we 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 are are not certain that you get immunity after this." Uh, scientists are working hard to see if it's true or if you do or don't. Um, but this is another coronavirus. With the other coronaviruses, you do get immunity. So we're going to see. And I'll update you as soon as new scientific information comes out. And then July, when the first studies start coming out that show T cells are recruited, uh, you get neutralizing antibodies. That was like before July, I think it was like June. Um, then I would have gone on TV and I would have said, it's looking like there is immunity after after COVID recovery. We don't know how long it lasts. We don't know how effective it is. I mean, I just, I think telling the public the truth, saying I don't know when it actually is true that you don't know, builds much more credibility and trust than pretending. Uh, I, I mean, this happens in medicine, by the way. Like I'm, I remember as a medical student, um, I would get in front of a, you know, you get in front of a patient and, you know, a medical student, I don't know a lot of things, right? So you just have to like, resist the temptation that just because you're wearing a white coat to say false things, pretend knowledge you don't have. It's a really important lesson that medical students learn. Um, and public health somehow didn't learn this. I'm not sure that lots of doctors learn that either, frankly. Yeah, having just true. dealt with somebody in an ICU, so many doctors don't even seem to understand the Bayesian principle. They cannot update any information based on, I mean, update their views of, of, of an intervention based on new information. Just drove me crazy. Anyway, that's a, a separate issue. But uh, I mean, on, on the uncertainty and, and being able to admit when you don't know something, I, I, I hate to, um, you know, to, to criticize you since you've certainly been subject to so much of it, but I'm not sure the Great Barrington Declaration did that either, right? You, you, you sort of assumed you knew um, what things were going to look like too, or you didn't didn't acknowledge that that you weren't sure either. Yeah, I mean that that, that I think that's fair. Uh, I mean we were we 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 were we were. Um, I, and, and I'm sorry, let me just finish that because actually I didn't really mean it so much as criticism as uh, as uh, as that when you're trying to convey something that's difficult and, and nuanced um, and scientific to a broad community, it's hard to add in. To, it's hard to add that in a way that people will understand. Yeah. So I, th I think um, 
I mean, I think that's, that's fair as, as far as it goes, Scott. I mean, I, it was a one-page document. It was yeah. written for the public. It wasn't it wasn't a scientific document in that sense. It was it was aimed at the public. You read it, anyone can read it, right? That that was the that was the purpose of it, uh, and it was to tell the public that there was actually a, a, a legitimate set of science, uh, an alternate scientific view for how to manage the pandemic. But it wasn't specifically a scientific document. Mm-hmm. So I guess the aim, um, uh, and like if I was writing the, you know, sort of paper that was going to go get published in 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 New England Journal of Medicine, I would have written it very differently. Um, uh, but I think um, the thing about about the my, the certainty that I had about the Great Barrington Declaration, it stemmed mainly from history, right? The, the Great Barrington Declaration, actually, Scott, it was it's probably the least original thing I ever worked on, by far. It's not. It's I. I. The, it's the old pandemic plan, mm-hmm. gussied up to look f- like I, I think we wrote it with some style, but that's about it. I mean, there wasn't the. There's not a single new idea in it, um, and so the confidence that I had in it had to do with the fact that for a century we followed that that plan, in for respiratory viral pandemics, and it worked, right? It. It's not that those viral pandemics didn't cause some damage. That's some. That's inevitable. Um, it's that that we didn't multiply that damage with policies that harm the poor or the vulnerable. Um, it, we, we, we sought to ad- address the damage from the viruses by developing vaccines and, and therapies and seeking to protect the vulnerable. Those were, those were the old plan. And so my confidence around that, by the Great Barrington Declaration, Scott, had to do with the fact that it was, uh, was actually the old plan. We were just trying to tell the public that, that uh, the thing we were doing, these lockdowns, all this stuff was brand new and really untested and hadn't worked through October. And it was <laughs> unlikely to work if we continued it. That's so that's that's partly my defense. I don't have a complete defense, Scott. I just it's I, I you know, you know, I'm I'm a scholar mainly, not not a public relations person. So I don't know exactly how to how to convey all of that uh, all at once. We what we wanted to do is want to bring the attention to the public that there was an alternate view. And that I think we succeeded. How so it, it, go ahead, Tom. Well, as far as the economics is concerned, um, you kind of go uh, beyond uh, criticizing economists for not for basically not talk, talking about the trade-offs appropriately to also censuring themselves as far as, I may have been, there's a relationship there, but as far as, um, as far as what would happen if we did these this, with this massive, massive stimulus plan and uh, and they basically and they basically censored themselves. Very few people, very few economists were critical of it. Certainly early on, Do you, is there a connection between the two? Between not looking at the trade offs and then staying kind of quiet about the uh, the risks of a massive stimulus. I mean, none of the normal economists I would have thought would speak up about spending six trillion dollars over. Like two years said said very much. I I don't think at the time. I mean, it was it was it was really um, it was really something. Like all of the debates that 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 had characterized American economic policy over budgeting um, for decades just went away overnight. Uh, it, it and it, it it's um yeah. I just I I th- I think uh, I I don't have any other answer for that other than self censorship. Like I don't I don't think that people honestly thought they wouldn't have enormous consequences on the economic future of the United States to have this kind of borrowing happen. The inflation is not a surprise, really. Um, I, I think there are some other elements of this too, Tom. So like, you know, in 2008, a lot of people predicted inflation that never came. And it sort of discredited a lot of the, the sort of like uh, rational expectation school of macro 
uh, types of people. Um, and so they, 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 were, they were, I think, a little gun shy to speak up uh, when this big stimulus happened. Um, but I think we learned a lot in, I mean, I don't do macro, but like I, I try to follow a little bit of the literature. I mean, I think we learned a lot about why there wasn't inflation in, out, of those, out of the Great Recession. Um, and, and quantitative easing. I think we learned that the, the, those, uh, the circumstances didn't pertain now, didn't pertain in 2020. The stimulus was a stimulus given to, you know, small businesses to so they didn't fold huge amounts of unemployment insurance, basically enormously inflationary transfers uh, financed by borrowing and printing money. It's going to cause inflation. I mean, just if economics knows anything, it's that. Especially with all the supply constraints there were. Yeah. Exactly. Although, you know, um, there, there were people, though, who who did talk about the inflationary effects. Um, Larry Summers, Jason Furman. Um, and so, you know, these were notable Democrats who who were, um, yeah, I, I, I guess it's not right to say they were opposed to the plans, but just that they would they would have major inflationary effects. But there didn't seem like there was a Jason Furman or Larry Summers on the public health side. No, uh, no, I, I actually, I think uh, Furman and uh, and and uh, Summers were actually quite brave. I, I, yeah, I, I don't mean to say that all economists failed. Um, mm. I think there were there were few as well. You, Scott, you had you 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 and Tom had me on the the podcast in twenty twenty. That was an act of bravery, actually. Um, <laughs> honestly, well, um, I don't want to use the word hero, but you know. I, <laughs> I will. I mean, <laughs> look, it really it was it was it's, um, but I I think uh I, I so I think economists. Like I said, I think I have much more criticism for public health than I do for economists. Um, although, although I, I do criticize economists, I don't, I don't, don't think we have, we didn't acquit ourselves well. Um, we, we should have been yelling bloody murder. Like I, th I think part of this is, okay, it's natural in health economics to think about the economy as vitally important for health. Right, the economy is not simply a matter of money, but a matter of life and death for for me and for for. It's just it's not it's not like uh, there really is a lives money trade off here. It's just is it's just lives and lives. Like you you uh, when you destroy uh, supply chains around the world, you're going to cause uh, unemployment that hits the poorest of the poor, and you're going to get starvation. You're going to get uh, dire poverty, which is exactly what's happened. Right, that's that's lives being lost because of the economic damage done by the the policies we followed, um, but uh, for some economists, we're all, we're almost shy—not you, Scott—but like the, we're shy to say that. We, we're shy to say, look, if if you ignore the money here, you're going to kill people. People will die as a result of it. We are dealing with lives. That's what economists do for a living. It's not any different than what public health does in that sense. But that um, debate—that debate has been going on with respect to you know health and safety regulatory issues for a long time and it's you know it's a hard sell to <laughs> right to, but, but uh, economists but economists didn't weigh in this time except for jay they didn't weigh in this time that's right <laughs> yeah that's right. That's right. i mean that's the problem like we i think i think part of it i mean i hesitate to bring this up but i think it's true um and it's true for not just economists but, but almost everybody um you know we we uh economists and, and, and many many academics we we uh, we work in we we are laptop class folks we are also scared for our own health, um, and we had the means to protect ourselves. And I think there, that played some role in 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 some of the reticence to speak up. It's not an excuse; it's just a, I think, a, a fact. Um, uh, so I, I, I just, I, yeah, and I, and I think uh, I, I, I don't, I don't really judge folks who do that 
I mean, it's people are human. Um, but I do think, um, you know, there were some economists that like actively tried to essentially attack any other economist who spoke up. Mm -hmm. um, and that I have less sympathy for. I, I don't I really feel, don't feel like naming names because because it's not it's really not constructive, but that was really not, not, uh, not a very constructive thing for them to do. Has, has that affected your, um, your research since then? I mean, maybe uh, you know, who you can co-author with and who's willing to work with you or has, has your research sort of continued, been able to continue and can collaborations continue the same way? Uh, I, I guess it'll change. It may change over time, but the, 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 my closest friends who I've written with for years have continued to stand by me and we've worked together on papers um, since then. Uh, I, uh, I, I'm sure that there are people who I've worked with in the past that probably don't want to work with me, uh, but you know, I, I, there are also on the flip side of that, Scott, there's other people, many people who, uh, who now want to work with me that, didn't, that I never would have known before. So right. I, I mean, it's, it is, um, it is what it is. I, I, I wouldn't change what I did. Uh, I mean, I kind of, I, I, I felt like I had an obligation because I did wear these two hats, this public health hat and this, this economist hat to speak up. Um, and I think it was the right thing for me to do. I, 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 I do wish that our professions had been um, more open and tolerant of dissent than they were uh, so that you didn't have to be you know, you didn't have to be a hero or whatever, brave to speak up. It should, it shouldn't, shouldn't be like that. We're just, we're just scholars. We're just people trying to like learn about the way the world works and we should do it with humility, thinking that maybe what I'm, what I do, what I'm doing is not right. That's just normal. Um, we should have conversations with each other without trying to destroy each other. Um, and I, unfortunately, I think both fields have found out, especially public health found out that's not true. So my impression is unfortunately um, that um, even though I think you're, you're right, we followed the wrong strategy and the tremendous costs that are going to be going to be with us for many, many, for decades, probably. Um, but that lesson has not really been learned by the, by the, by, by the political, by politicians, government officials, the general public. It's just, in, in that sense, it's, it's just a waste, it's just a waste that we're not learning the appropriate lessons. Is there anything we can do to kind of correct that or, um, and then there's no real, real, like, like in a war, I guess there's an, what do they call it? The military call it an after, after action report. After yeah. action report, yeah. In medicine, we call it, uh, if there's a morbidity and mortality uh, conference, right? So you have a conference where you get together all the doctors who've managed the patient that just died and try to figure out what went wrong. You, you, it, might, it can get heated, but the, the, the finger pointing doesn't leave the room. Like the, it's the, 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 what leaves the room is, here are the lessons we've learned. Let's not do these things again. Um, we absolutely have to have that, Tom. Absolutely have to have that. And I think they, it will come. Um, there was like uh, like the U.S. House did this thing, this ridiculously partisan thing, where they they did a uh, the coronavirus task force uh, they, that they have um, blamed Scott Atlas for the entire debacle somehow, which is nonsense. Um, it, I mean, it just persuades basically nobody. Uh, it, in fact, it harms. It just poisons the well of discussion. Um, I I, th I think the um, uh, if the United States doesn't do this, other countries will. The U U.K. is gearing up for a parliamentary inquiry, just like it, they did after the Iraq war. Uh, there, there's talk in Australia of a, of a royal commission. Um, even in the United States, uh, it's, unfortunately, it's just mainly Republican uh, uh, senators and Republican House members that are talking about this. But, the, the, but, but if, when, if and when um, they take control of the House and Senate, they will have some 
push to have some kind of inquiry. I'm going to work very hard to make sure that that inquiry is not aimed at finger pointing, but rather an honest assessment of an evaluation of the policies. Uh, I, I think any honest evaluation of the policy will lead to the conclusion that lockdown should be a dirty word, that we should remove it from our lexicon of thinking and never adopt it again as a strategy for dealing with this kind of respiratory viral pandemics. Are, are you, also, do you think that a, 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 if it's just sponsored by the Republicans, yeah, it, it will be honest? Partisan, it wasn't just Republicans, yeah. It right. really would help to have Democrats come on board. Um, and I think, uh, that, you know, I think as the, the pandemic fades, and the opportunity for political wins out of this fade with it. And I think that that's, that's coming. Um, honest people on the Democratic side will start to say, gosh, maybe we shouldn't have closed schools in blue areas for two years. Maybe that really wasn't a smart thing to do. Um, it really hurt, hurt, hurt a lot of people we care about. And I think those, those folks will start to open up their minds and come, come over. Um, the, 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 uh, I think uh, you're, uh, you asked if, if it's possible for Republicans do an honest assessment. I think it is possible. Uh, it's just not as good as it would be if it were bi truly a bipartisan assessment. Uh, I think the question is, is, can Republicans, if they do it by themselves, resist the temptation to point fingers and not, because, you know, like the blame here is on both sides. If we're just being honest, like the Trump administration instituted the lockdowns, right? Uh, it's, it's blue states that instituted the longest school closures. Um, an enormous number of political, uh, of of political actors were in favor of the lockdowns. You don't get $6 trillion of spending unless it's bipartisan. Um, and so a lot of people don't want to talk about this because it, the, it's not really cleanly partisan. It's not a blue, it's not, it, you know, you think about lockdowns as, as a left-wing thing, but it's not actually. It's the, a socialist Swedish government declined to lock down. Right. Um, you know, a right-wing Tory government in the UK locked down. I, I just, it's not, it's not at all clear that it, it, it's obviously left-wing to lock down. Um, and so if we can get that through, we can have an honest assessment of the policy. That's that's what I'm trying to aim at. Do you think there's a, a chance for some time in the near future, a COVID morbidity and mortality conference um, among people in the public health and economics professions, um, you know, from you know people who argue different sides or is it still too raw? I, I, so like six months ago, I, I approached the Dean of my medical school and asked him if he would host such a conference. And he said, "There's not not possible. Uh, it's it's too many people are raw on the other side. Hmm. Um, we, we can't have an academic discussion over this." Um, I, I don't I don't know about public health. Like public health still seems to me to be in denial about how badly things went. Mm -hmm. And until that until they come to terms, it may it maybe have to be forced on them from the outside. The people that were harmed by it, you know, like like the education activists are finally starting to realize the harm done to American children from these these two years of school closures, especially to poor children, they're starting to speak up. You're starting to see stories in the New York Times about this. Right, um, that has become very mainstream now. Yeah, and so I think, I think, I think the, the, uh, the non-public health people who, who speak for the poor, the vulnerable, the, when they start to speak up, their voices will get heard uh, and it will force public health to respond. Um, that's, that is coming, uh, although I, I'm, I don't think we're there at this point yet. I, ha I have one final question. <laughs> Why was it called the Great Barrington Re Resolution? Good question. So we called it that because um, it was written in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Right. Tom, I said it was unoriginal, but I say my, that my one original contribution was the name of the thing. Um, okay. And what the reason is I'd never been to Great Barrington. I'd never heard of Great Barrington. Uh, on the taxi ride in, 
uh, the, 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 uh, the, I asked the guy what town we're going to, and he's like, oh, this is Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Uh, and sounds like it struck me as a cool name. And then when we wrote the declaration, uh, I was thinking in my head of the Port Huron statement, which is like this famous 60s era thing. Right. I'm like, okay, we can call it the Great Barrington. And it has this like fantastic thing where you don't know if great refers to the declaration <laughs> or to Barrington. But yeah. why, did you, why did you all meet in Great Barrington? Um, so the, uh, the the conference uh, where Martin Sunetter and I uh, met was organized, uh, was hosted by the American Institute for Economic Research, which is in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Okay. And uh, it's relatively close to Martin's house. Uh, so that's that's the main reason. Okay. okay. Um, I think that's probably where we should wrap it up. Really fascinating conversation, just like last time. We really appreciate your coming on and, and talking to us, taking your time for this. Um, really. <laughs> All right. This was great. Um, and I'm glad we would now, now we actually have wrapped up solving that mystery. Um, so Jay, thanks. Thanks so much. Really fun talking to you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.